You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast. www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. 7 2. If the winners of the popular vote, and in Al Gore's case, the actual winner of the fucking election in 2000, had won the White House, there would be a 7-2 liberal majority on the Supreme Court. Instead, what we've got is a 5-4 conservative majority. While again and again and again, majorities of Americans have supported Democratic candidates and Democratic policies, again and again and again, the anti-small-D Democratic rat fuckery baked into our system has handed the White House to the losing candidate, which is why conservatives have a 5-4 majority on the court. Anyway, I bring up the Supreme Court on my sex and relationship advice show because right now, today, this morning, the Supreme Court is hearing oral arguments in three cases that touch on LGBT civil rights. Lower courts have decided that gay and trans Americans are protected from workplace discrimination thanks to existing laws that ban discrimination on the basis of sex, As Mark David Stern wrote in Slate, it is impossible to discriminate against LGBTQ people without taking sex into account. Consider an employer who fires a man for marrying a man but does not fire a woman for marrying a man. This discrimination is inherently based on sex. Change the male employee's sex and he wouldn't be fired. It's similarly impossible to discriminate against a trans person for being trans without being motivated by ideas about sex, biological sex, sex and gender stereotypes. The Supreme Court laid low last year, Stern writes, ducking controversial cases in the wake of Brett Kavanaugh's wildly controversial appointment to the court and Neil Gorsuch's wholly illegitimate appointment to a stolen fucking seat. But this year, this year it's different. In addition to taking cases on LGBT rights, the court has taken up cases that touch on racial discrimination, gun control, religious quote-unquote freedom, that is the special right for right-wing Christian bigots to discriminate against queers, single mothers, Jews, Muslims, etc., Also, the court is hearing cases on immigration, DACA, the Dreamers, police brutality, sentencing reform, and on and on. Oh, of course, and abortion, too. Court watchers like Stern are predicting a bloodbath, a conservative revolution, in Stern's words. And all of these decisions will be coming down at the end of June 2020, four months and change before the 2020 election. The damage to queer rights, women's rights, the rights of immigrants and prisoners, people of color— could be generational. The courts, man. In 2016, a lot of people on the right who did not like Trump held their noses and voted for him anyway because they wanted the courts packed with right-wing ideologues. Trump and McConnell delivered. A lot of those same people who didn't like Trump then are going to reward Trump happily with their votes in 2020. And not to pick at scabs or anything, but in the run-up to the 2016 election, those of us who told people on the left who didn't like Hillary Clinton to do the same thing to think about all those judicial appointments and hold your nose and vote for Clinton, we were accused of scaremongering. Well, is it okay to be scared now? Can we be scared yet? I'm fucking scared. I fully expect the hijacked Supreme Court, the weaponized Supreme Court, to issue rulings gutting anti-discrimination protections for LGBT people and reversing or gutting Roe v. Wade. Immigrants, dreamers, they'll be fucked too, as will prisoners, people of color, people have been discriminated against on the basis of race. You know, Clinton wasn't the perfect candidate, I realize, but no candidate is perfect. 
And in every national election, your choice boils down to the D or the R. In 2020, as in 2016, a lefty protest vote for a third party is a vote for Donald Trump. We face a long fight to bring balance back to the courts. And the first battle in that fight is the presidential election in 2020 and Senate elections in 2020. So please join me, as I will occasionally remind and hector you, in taking the pledge, the blue no matter who pledge. I honestly, personally, don't want it to be Biden. But if it's Biden... If Biden wins fair and square the Democratic primary, I am voting for Biden and sending him a check. I prefer Warren over Sanders, but if it's Sanders, I'm voting for Sanders and sending him a check. And if it's Warren, Sanders voters who claim to care about the courts or the environment or health care, they will support Warren. Sanders supporters who don't support Warren if she gets the nomination, well, they don't get to make those claims ever again. They don't get to say that they care about anything other than Bernie Sanders ever again. They don't get to tell us they care about the environment or the courts or health care or anything else. There are people running for the Democratic nomination that I don't like and not just Biden. But the stakes are too high and the hole we're in is too deep for anybody's purity politics. I'm voting blue in 2020, no matter who, and so should you. All right, coming up on today's show on the micro-free edition of the Savage Lovecast, tons of your cues, lots of my A's, and on the Magnum edition of the Savage Lovecast that you can subscribe to at savagelovecast.com. The Magnum is twice as long and there are no ads. Author and body positivity advocate L. Chase joins me. L. Chase of Curvy Girl Sex. She joins me to tackle a few of your questions. That's on the Magnum on this week's show. Hi, Dan. I am a 30-year-old bisexual lady in the Northwest, and I'm wondering if you have advice for people in open relationships where you're allowed to have flings with other people, but you're not poly. I like that my relationship is basically monogamous externally, and I don't want people prying into my sex life. I like that my partner and I have a solid commitment and can be coupley with our friends, and pretty much all of whom are pretty straight edge. Some of my friends know, but it's kind of tough because what are people like me supposed to do when something kind of irks or is a struggle and you want to complain or chat about it with your girlfriends the same way they would complain about how their boyfriend is being frustrating or something normal made them feel really bad? But you can't because even the friends who accept the openness are suspicious of it and it's like you're representing the viability of all open relationships all the time. It's extra bad because I'm bi and people just assume I'm straight because I'm so femme. I just feel really misunderstood. Like, if I admit that my boyfriend had a fling this week and I'm feeling excited and in love, but also a little tender, I just feel like I can't say it. People assume that I'm being taken advantage of and that my partner's going to screw me over and that I'm an idiot, even though we've never been more solid in our lives. I'm all alone whenever I have any feelings. I can only talk to the few people I know who are also in open relationships, and sometimes that feels extra alienating because sometimes those aren't the people that I'm feeling really close to at the time. Uh, anyway, it's a real issue for me. Help, Dan. So you say you have a tight circle of friends that you want to confide in who are in monogamous relationships who don't understand. But you also have friends that you can confide in who are in open relationships who should understand. And your dilemma here is that you're not always with your friends in open relationships when you're having these tender feelings and you need to vent. And you don't feel like you can vent to the people who are in closed relationships because they're not going to understand or they're going to make assumptions that aren't true. Well, the solution, the way out here, 
is to spend more time with your friends and open relationships when you're feeling tender, the people you can open up to unselfconsciously, or to make your friends and open relationships into more understanding people about the dynamics of an open relationship by taking more time to unpack your feelings and unpack their feelings about your feelings and to address their assumptions, their incorrect assumptions, their misapprehensions, their prejudices about open relationships. And really, it's an investment of time and energy and effort and building better friends for yourself, making better and more understanding friends of your friends who are in monogamous relationships. So that when you have these feelings, when you're feeling tender, when you need some love and support from your friends, you have more friends that you can rely on, your friends in open relationships who understand because they're experiencing exactly what you are experiencing or have experienced what you're experiencing. And your friends then who are in closed relationships who know better now because you've taken the time to bring them up to speed. You've made this investment of time and energy and effort in your friends or in closed relationships so that they can be better friends to you. It's worth the time, worth the energy, worth the effort. Hi, Dan. About nine years ago, I had cut a friend out of my life with whom it was becoming clear I had a very toxic friendship. I was a very solitary person at the time and was dealing with depression. And, and she kind of forged the friendship of her own volition. I was very reluctant and self-protective and but yet she was very insistent on spending time with me. And ultimately, I ended up appreciating the, the, the kindness that at first seemed like the reason she had begun the friendship. But over time, it became clear that her friendship was conditional. She wanted something more out of it. And um, on a few occasions, I told her that I wasn't interested in anything more, but she didn't really seem to listen. Um, and meanwhile, it's become clear that she, she would, it was very toxic the way she was communicating with me conversation seemed like designed to create drama and like drawing me into a level of intimacy that I, I didn't really want. And she'd often express disappointment in me for reasons I didn't really understand and, and kind of ignore my boundaries. For instance, calling and texting, interrupting me when I was in the middle of a huge project on a tight timeline. And I ultimately told her I thought the friendship wasn't healthy. And I, I, wouldn't, I said I wouldn't show up to this event she had invited me to. And she was furious and we didn't talk for nine years. So now, after all this time, she recently started texting me again. She recently got married and weirdly, shortly afterward, her new husband, who I don't know, friend of me on Facebook, and she texts me every few weeks saying she's in town, she wants to talk. And we've spoken once, but and I'd like to give her the benefit of doubt that she's changed, but honestly, this behavior feels familiar and I don't want to get drawn into this again. I don't know how to tell her this because I'm afraid that the conversation itself will kind of feed into this drama and tension that had perpetuated our relationship in the past. So the question is, how do I tell her I'm not interested? Ulterior motives, not just for creeper dudes anymore. Actually, they were never just for creeper dudes. There's lots of people out there of all genders who enter into supposed friendships with folks when what they want is something more and they have creepy ulterior motives. They can't just ask because they don't want to get a no. So they engage in lots of manipulative and toxic behaviors. This woman who engaged in those kinds of manipulative and toxic behaviors exited your life nine years ago. And good. Sounds like a great nine years for both of you. You didn't have to think about her and she got the fuck on with her life and got married. And suddenly she reaches out to you. Well, just because she reached out to you, you weren't obligated to respond to her. If her presence in your life wasn't 
something that brought you joy, like they say on the TV show about getting rid of things you don't want in your fucking apartment anymore, you weren't obligated to respond. You weren't obligated to engage. You also aren't obligated to tell her you aren't interested in talking to her anymore. You can just stop talking to her. But if you feel like you got to tell her and you're worried about the drama and tension that that might create, well, go ahead and tell her and then block her fucking number. You, you don't have to allow her to have continued access to your phone so you can keep up to date on the drama and tension of this relationship that is entirely optional. Opt the fuck out of it already. Send her one last text, wish her well, but say you don't want to have any future contact with her and then block her fucking number. Hi, friends. So I'm a female in her late 20s uh, living in Oakland, California, and I consider myself pretty open-minded, but also pretty shy in the bedroom. It takes me a while to warm up, but I'm super crazy about my boyfriend. We have amazing regular sex. I've never been attracted to someone so much in my life. Uh, the problem is, is that all of my friends are just obsessed <laughs> with talking about um, putting fingers in their boy boyfriend's like butts and how much they like it. And I'm just like, my general reaction is just like, oh my fucking God, like you, no way. Why would I want to do that? Even though I guess he does it to me and we've never talked about it. He just does it. And I've asked, we were all like, visiting my girlfriend the other day and he was privy to our, you know, private lady conversations. And one of my friends laughed and asked if anyone had ever done it to him. And he said, no. And I'm wondering, like, am I depriving him by not like sticking my finger in his butt? Like, I don't even know how, like, and I don't want to experiment on him. I'm very self-conscious about trying sexual things out and doing them the wrong way, especially when it comes to putting your finger in someone's butt. Is this something that I think really am, like, am depriving him by not doing it? I don't know. I just need some advice. And if I should do it, how do you go about doing that? <laughs> so if I follow you... You and your boyfriend can have a conversation about fingers in his ass with your other lady friends when it's a private lady conversation that he is close enough to overhear and close enough, you know, adjacent to this lady finger and butt conversation. So adjacent, so close that he can participate in that conversation. But you somehow can't have a conversation with him one on one about whether he feels deprived of fingers in his ass because he's doing it to you sometimes without asking well fucked up and you're not doing it for him talk to you he talked to me you talked to me and all of these strangers who are listening to the sound of your voice right now on my podcast you talked with all of us with complete seeming ease and and comfort a little stumbling here and there but you know sex sometimes is awkward to talk about but you didn't have any trouble talking with me about it or my listeners pretend your boyfriend is me. Pretend your boyfriend is all my thousands and thousands of listeners and have a conversation with him. Do you want me to put my finger in your butt? How hard is that to say? To get your finger in his butt, you need to play with his butt a little bit, lube up your finger, lube up his hole, run your finger in a circle around his hole before you attempt to go into the sphincter, trim your fucking fingernails, take off your rings or whatever, and you can get a finger in his butt. If you're worried about 
driving the finger into his butt or pushing it yourself. You can just give him your hand. You can have him direct your finger into his ass himself and he can then be in control of the speed and depth of penetration, take some of the responsibility for this tremendously risky sex act off your shoulders. This isn't hard. Fingers in the butt, not hard. In my personal experience, fingers in the butt, not that pleasurable. Fingers are almost a little too narrow and bony. If you want to experiment with butt play and pleasure, get a vibrating butt plug. Not a giant one, but not too small a vibrating butt plug either because those small ones that basically look like fingers, when your sphincters contract during orgasm, they will fly across the fucking room. It will literally shoot out of your ass if it's your ass that it's in, his ass if it's his ass that it's in. Go get a couple of lovely little butt toys. Obviously, your boyfriend's interested in a butt play a little bit. He's played with your butt a little bit. But of course, before you shove a finger into him, before you shove a butt plug into him, you need to have a conversation with him. And you are capable of having this conversation. And the proof is your call to me about it, your conversation with your girlfriends about it while he was overhearing it, while he was listening. All right. Go talk to your boyfriend or call back. Give me his phone number and I will call him and have a conversation with your boyfriend for you. Hi, Dan. I'm a tech-savvy at-risk youth. I'm a straight married woman in her 30s. I recently sat for a four-hour tattoo with an amazing artist. He did beautiful work, but also while I was in the chair getting the tattoo, the sensation of the needle plus being touched was really turning me on. I know chemically why this was happening. I know my body was releasing endorphins to compensate for the pain and that that part of it is pretty normal. But the arousal part was different. It is not my first tattoo. I did sort of suspect I liked the feeling. Something about this artist and the length of time I was in the chair made the effect just that much more intense. It was really confusing in the moment because for a hot second, I thought I wanted to fuck the artist. But instead, I did what Dan Savage would have advised me to do in this situation. And I took all that energy home to my husband and I fucked his brains out. Yay. I was very candid with him about what had happened. He's been really supportive about the whole thing. And it's like a switch has been flipped with me. We're having lots of great sex. That part's awesome. So here's the problem. Before all this happened, it was always in my plan to get more heavily tattooed. And again, because the work this artist does is amazing, I would love for him to do as much of that work as possible. And okay, we got to be honest here. There's the fact that I'd be getting something else out of it. But if I know ahead of time that I'm probably going to get an erotic charge out of this experience, am I being a creepy pervert and involving him in my kink against his will? I did not outwardly indicate that this was happening at the time, I don't think. He may or may not have known, and I'm sure it is not the first time he's seen it if he did know. But in any case, he was perfectly professional. He says, I'm welcome back anytime. And in fact, he said I shouldn't even think about going to anyone else. I do not know if this would happen if I did go to someone else. In any case, I can't go right back to him because he books up months in advance. So I have some time to figure this out, but I honestly don't know what's appropriate here. I think this falls under the category of secret perving. The example I like to use is the foot fetishist who works in a shoe store, who handles women's feet all day, puts shoes on women's feet all day. This would have to be a high-end shoe store now, nowadays. There's not very many of them left. But this used to be a job, shoe salesman. And if somebody went into that line of work because they liked feet, they liked shoes, and they were capable of comporting themselves in a professional manner all day, capable of not panting or spotting or having obvious erections and they went home at the end of the day after having helped many many ladies try on shoes and furiously beat off about it well 
it's just secret perving. I'm going to read something I wrote. Important note. It's not just about how the foot fetishes, secret perv, shoe sales clerk, aspiring podiatrist perceives himself, but how he's perceived by others, by his customers and his coworkers. If he thinks he's playing it cool and thinks his perving is secret, but his customers are creeped out by his behavior, demeanor, bulges, spots, breathing, or his coworkers are creeped out, then the perving is in secret and it's not okay. In this instance, you aren't the service provider who's secretly perving. You are the service recipient who's secretly perving. Is it permissible? Well, yes, I think the same standard applies. If the perving is secret, if you get this erotic charge, but you're able to treat the person who's giving you this erotic charge like a professional, if you're able to keep it professional and then run home and furiously masturbate about it or run home and plow all that sexual energy into your husband and fuck each other's brains out, I think it's allowed. There's a lot of hot tattoo artists out there. A lot of them know they're hot. A lot of people go to tattoo artists that are hot specifically because they're hot and there's something sensual and intimate about that experience. So I think a lot of tattoo artists know that some of their customers are aroused by this sensual intimate experience, how they behave, how they treat them. Do they treat them like a professional or do they come across as a creepy perv in the chair getting a tattoo? If it's the former, like a professional, okay. If it's the latter, not okay. Same thing I think applies often with personal trainers. A lot of personal trainers are really hot and that personal training shit is kind of intimate and sensual and touchy. And it is okay, I think, to hire a personal trainer you think is hot who kind of cranks you up to be in their presence so long as you aren't drooling over them and making them uncomfortable and you're still treating them like a professional and then go home and plow all that sexual energy into your partner. Fine. Permissible secret perving. And I think that's what's going on here. Go ahead and make that appointment with this tattoo artist who's already told you he wants to see you again and enjoy the thrill secretly and then run home and plow it into your husband loudly. Hey, Dan, I am a 27-year-old bisexual woman living on the East Coast. I'm calling in about how to deal with a situation that I thought I was just going to let go, but it's still bothering me a couple weeks later. So I met a guy on Bumble, and we went out a few times and hooked up um, after our second date. And we were going to hang out for a fourth time, pretty much just to hook up. And he had brought up that it would really turn him on to um, take video of me sucking his cock. And so I, um, you know, I thought I didn't know how I felt about that. You know, we were just getting to know each other. But, you know, maybe in the future or, you know, we could at least talk about it. So we get together and we start hooking up and he takes out his camera and starts filming it. I didn't protest or say no. Um, and he actually sent me some of the video the next day. The thing is, um, we never hung out after that. I kind of tried to go on another date, but to no avail. And so, you know kind of talked it up to online dating that maybe we wouldn't hang out again and that I probably should have let him take that video but now I'm thinking about it and I never really consented to the whole thing and I'm wondering if I should confront him about it you know I'm not going to know if he actually deletes the video if I ask him to but just I need some advice on how to confront him about this situation. So he told you after your first date that he wanted to videotape you sucking his dick and you said you would consider it. And then on your second date, while you were sucking his dick, he pulls out his phone. And in that moment, his self-serving rationalization went like this. 
She was considering it. If this is not okay with her, she will say something. She will tell me to put my phone away. She knows why I took my phone out. We talked already about what I wanted to do with my phone while she sucked my dick. And so here we are. She's sucking my dick and I'm getting my phone out. And that was, in his mind, self-serving rationalization, your opportunity to withdraw your consent. He's convinced himself that you gave your consent in that moment by not objecting, by not actively withdrawing your consent. And that isn't active, enthusiastic consent. That isn't yes means yes. What he's operating under is no means no. And he could just do whatever the fuck you wanted until you said no, which you didn't say in the moment. And now you feel violated. So what do you do? You know, you're not going to continue to date this guy. He's ghosting on you. Obviously, he's not interested in continuing to date you. Maybe this power trip is all he wanted out of this interaction or out of every interaction he ever has with a woman. If it'll make you feel better, I think it would be a good idea to confront him. And maybe it would benefit the women he encounters in the future if he's got a conscience that you can possibly reach to say to him, I feel bad about this. And I don't feel like I consented to it. And we talked about it and I said I'd consider it in that moment when you pulled out the camera. For whatever reason, I didn't object. I didn't say no, but I never said yes. You never got a yes. And so now I feel terrible about this. And it wasn't the joyful, fun, consensual encounter that you may have convinced yourself that it is. And maybe in the moment convinced yourself that it was. And so I don't feel good about this. And, you know, whether you're going to date somebody forever or be with somebody forever or just fuck them a couple of times, you want them to go out in the world feeling good about you and feeling good about that encounter. And I don't. I don't feel good about you and I don't feel good about this encounter. And I thought you should know that. You'll feel better for having said all of that to him. And fingers crossed, maybe he will think better of it next time when he pulls out his camera and he will ask for the yes, not wait for the no. Hi, Dan. I'm a 31-year-old millennial in Frederick, Maryland, uh, currently stress-eating a pint of Ben & Jerry's, dairy-free peanut butter and jelly cookies in the Wegmans parking lot on a Tuesday night. I went out with an awesome guy this past Saturday, and we both mentioned that we had a good time, enjoyed each other's company, and even made plans for a second date. However, yesterday he texted me saying that he's not emotionally ready to date anyone, and then he deleted his OkCupid account, and that I was so brave for putting myself in the uncomfortable position of going on dates. Now, as much as I love Ben and Jerry's, I'd also much like binging in the parking lot at Wegmans. Total loser. Why would this guy agree to go out with me if he wasn't ready to date? Is this code for I'm just not that into you? I feel like this rejection is affecting me more than usual because I actually saw a future with this person. Give me some clarity because I can barely see through the haze of my rejection. You need to get a grip. You need to get a grip on that impulse to see a future with someone and become so emotionally invested in that future that you're devastated after one date. You had one date and maybe you did that thing that people shouldn't do where they have a long and extended direct message or text message interaction and flirtation before that first meeting. And so maybe you feel like you really got to know this guy and maybe you really made yourself vulnerable to him and really opened up to him in advance of that first date. And that first date confirmed for you that you were right to make this emotional investment in him. And that first date made you feel so good about your, your past interactions and how vulnerable you'd already made yourself to this guy that you began to imagine a future with him. 
you got out way over your skis and you fell on your face and you need to, like I said, get a grip, get a grip on yourself right now in the situation you're in right now. You had one date with a guy and then he decided that he's not ready for a relationship, which is sometimes true. Sometimes people aren't ready for a relationship. Often it's code. And what it means is I'm not interested in being in a relationship with you. And that hurts and it sucks and rejection is never fun. But if he's not interested in you, he's never going to be interested in you. And the less time of yours he wastes, the sooner you can move on to and find the guy or guys who are interested in you. So the person who rejects you after one date, instead of drawing it out over six months, if they really know they're not interested, they've done you a favor. Feel your feelings, have your Ben and Jerry's, have your little binge, have your brief pity party, but you got to put it in perspective. It was one date. And in addition to getting a grip on that, it was just one date. You need to get a grip on this impulse to overinvest emotionally in a possibility. It's fine to fantasize about possibilities and romantic possibilities, but you don't want to invest that fantasy in one person that you've only had one single date with because the odds that that one person is going to be the guy that you can have that future you're fantasizing about and just like casting him in that role right now, the odds that he's going to be that guy are really slim. We go on lots of dates before we find someone that we can build a future with. And so continue to invest in that fantasy of the future, but you're going to have to recast this role, the role of your partner. This guy ain't it. That's a bummer. Eat your ice cream. Wake up tomorrow and decide that you are over this. Hey, Dan. I'm an early 40s cis male on the West Coast, and I'm on all the apps, and it sucks just a numbers game and everybody knows it. So nobody puts any effort into developing a particular connection to see if it could actually lead to a relationship. Women know that there's plenty more guys where that came from. And men know that there's very little chance of any one particular match turning into something more. So they just keep moving. And of course, when People are doing all this swiping and chatting that goes nowhere. Then you just try to, you know, meet up with whoever's willing. You don't really think about who do I want to have a relationship with? Does this person really fit, you know, my vision for myself? And that's where I'm at right now. I, I wish there was a way to find something meaningful and not have the apps be such a time suck. And if that's getting off the apps, then great. You have my permission to get off the apps. If the apps are making you miserable, if the apps make it seem like just a numbers game, if you find being on the apps dehumanizing, if you think it just makes you into a stat and a number, get the fuck off the apps. Get out there in the real world. Go meet people in meat space. Go do things. Volunteer. There's a presidential election underway. Go meet people who are trying to get... Pete Buttigieg or Kamala Harris or Elizabeth Warren or God forbid Joe Biden, the nomination. And you may meet somebody that you 
click with when you're thrown together. You know, you think about the way and, – and friends aren't lovers and lovers often aren't friends, but sometimes they are. But the way you made friends when you were a child, you could literally walk up to somebody and say, you want to be friends? The way you make friends and often find lovers as an adult is if you're not on the apps, which is where the plurality of straight people actually meet their partners these days, it's because circumstance and a shared goal, often work, throws you together and then you establish a rapport and then you realize that there is a spark there and – one thing leads to another. Somebody asks somebody out. Somebody asks if I can kiss you in an appropriate time or an appropriate manner, having controlled for power imbalances and been thoughtful about it. So there are ways to meet women. There are ways to make friends that aren't online. Get out there in the real world. Figure out what it is that you like to do. Obviously, you don't like to be on apps. Obviously, being on the dating apps makes you miserable. Stop doing that thing that you don't like to do and get out there and meet space and do the things that you like to do. And then even if you haven't met somebody that you can have something serious with out there in the real world doing the things that you like to do, you will be hopefully a little more at peace with yourself, a little happier with your life because even if you are single still, you will be doing the things that you like to do rather than sitting home alone staring at your phone. Hey, Dan, 52-year-old man, and I need your advice regarding a family matter. So I am adopted. My, my mom and dad, my non-biological parents told me when I was very young, wasn't really an issue when I was younger. Fast forward in, to my late 20s, and I got the information regarding my biological parents, reached out to both of them. My biological mom uh, at first was uh, really wonderful. I flew out to meet her and my half-siblings a couple times. Um, and then, unfortunately, it turned out she was an awful homophobe and did not show up to my first wedding, to my first wife. My biological father, when I reached out to him, didn't acknowledge me, um, claimed that he never knew my biological mother, and I had written him a letter after a phone conversation, just asking for some basic medical advice. He did write me back. And if a lawyer didn't write the letter, he certainly spoke to one. I just found out that he died, passed away uh, earlier this year. And a friend of a friend knows somebody that was fairly close to his family um, in the Midwest. And I got some details regarding his death as well as the uh, as well as the fact that um, I have three half-siblings um, that are out on social media. And my friend has told me that if I am interested, um, I can get that information from her. So um, here's where I need the advice. I'm really curious about my biological dad's uh, family, his background. I really don't know much about it. So there's part of me that wants to reach out to my half-siblings. On the other hand, as my wife has pointed out, um, I know that my contacting them might cause them pain because I'm almost positive from our phone conversation from the letter that he wrote me that he did not absolutely tell his wife and or his children about me. So I am weighing whether or not to get in touch with them and uh, satisfying my curiosity and maybe developing a relationship with them or sparing them uh, any possible pain that my contact might call. Your existence may be inconvenient to these people, to your biological mother, to your biological father, may even be inconvenient to your biological half-siblings. But your existence is a fact and you have a right to exist in this world and you have a right to speak up 
and you have a right to contact other human beings that you have a genetic connection to, biological connection to, and then they have a right to decide whether they want to be a part of your life or not. And it sounds like your horrible biological mother didn't want to be a part of your life. Sounds like you probably wouldn't want her to be a part of yours. And it sounds like your biological father wasn't psyched about hearing from you either. It doesn't follow then, however, that your biological half-siblings wouldn't be excited to hear from you. There's plenty of examples out there of people who hear in adulthood from half-siblings that they did not know that they had and that these became good and healthy relationships and welcome contacts. But there's a couple of things I think you need to weigh before you reach out to your half-siblings. Is their mother still alive? You talk about your biological father's passing. You have these half-siblings. He had these kids with someone else. Is she still alive? Is she his ex-wife or is she his widow? Would finding out about you traumatize this woman who is grieving the death of her husband at this moment? If so, you may want to wait till a less sensitive time. Or you may want to wait until your biological father's wife has also passed away so that this is less potentially messy. You also want to find out, I think you'd want to find out, where you fall. Are you smack dab in the middle age-wise with your half-siblings? Was this an affair that your biological father had? Was he cheating on his then-wife at the moment she was bearing and raising his three children? You, then this information could be very upsetting to the biological half-siblings and to their mother if their mother is still alive. If you're 15 years older and this relationship that your biological father denies having had with your biological mother but you've established it somehow and it's a fact, if it predates him having met or having begun to have children with his widow, well, then it's potentially less upsetting. So I think you need to be sensitive to how the fact of your existence may be received by your biological half-siblings. And the more sensitive you are to their feelings in advance, the likelier you are to get a better reception from them when you do contact them. So if your biological father only recently passed away and he has a widow and she is deep in the mourning process, as they are, hearing from you now may be very upsetting to the entire family and then they won't appreciate you having reached out at this particular moment to let them know that you exist. But if you wait two years or if you wait until after their mother passes away, if she's still alive, to reach out to them and you're able to say that, like I've been thinking about reaching out to you for years. I didn't want to reach out to you right after our father's death. I thought that might be insensitive and upsetting. So I waited. That is a credit to you that you waited. That communicates to them that you are someone they might want to make contact with because you have a high emotional IQ, because you were sensitive to their feelings at a time when they were suffering. And discovering your existence at that time may have been a distraction or interfered with their grieving of their father and their ability to care for their mother at that moment. That said, you've gotten a bad reaction from your biological mother. You've gotten an even worse reaction, it seems, from your biological Father, that doesn't guarantee a bad reaction from your biological half-siblings. I hope you aren't too invested in having a relationship with these, these, these people. Considering who at least one of their parents was, they may not be kind or healthy in the same way that your biological father, when you finally got in touch with him, wasn't kind or healthy or, or giving or receptive or particularly psyched about your existence. So I want you to brace yourself 
for the worse, that they have no desire to be in contact with you. And then if they do desire to be in contact with you, well, great. Then they've exceeded your expectations rather than crushing your expectations. Hi, Dan. Um, this is a 31-year-old cis woman calling. Basically, I just feel very lonely in my life. My mum passed away this year and I no longer have contact with my dad for various reasons. I I know this sounds like an exaggeration, but I don't have any friends, or at least anyone I could call or consider a, a close friend. Um, I also don't have any other family, really. I mean, our family's never been close, but in my life, I have my, my partner and he is he's my boyfriend, he's my best friend, he's my confidant, basically he is everything to me in my life. But I I can't be with him romantically and I think I've always known that from the beginning. We've been together now five years and broken up twice now in that period and we've we broke up and got back uh, together again maybe like what, two months ago. But I just, I can't do it Intimately, I, I, I can't, I'm not attracted to him and I just, I know I need to end things properly this time and I just can't, I don't know what to do without him and there's no, there's no one there to fall back on, there's just no other support or at least there's no one else who I feel truly cares about me and I just, I don't know, I don't know what to do and I was just hoping to get your advice. There is someone there you can fall back on. There is someone who cares about you and that person is you. You are the person that you're going to fall back on. Uh, your call makes me think of what uh, Joan Price once said on the show, that it is better to be alone because you're alone than to be alone because you're with the wrong person. And right now you are with the wrong person and it's making you miserable to be with this wrong person. But your fear of being on your own and utterly alone because your mother has passed away because you haven't forged intimate friendships with others that you can rely on. I understand that fear. I understand that terror, but you're engaged in a little tragical thinking, not magical thinking, kind of it's opposite tragical thinking where you're telling yourself because you haven't forged those relationships. Now you will never be able to forge those relationships in the future. And that if you are alone, you certainly won't be able to forge those relationships. And I think that being alone, ending this relationship, which you're only two months back into the on-again stage of this on-again, off-again relationship, ending this relationship, striking out on your own, being alone, and then reaching out to others who may be as alone as you are or getting out there in the world, as we said earlier on the show, and just fucking doing the things that give you pleasure, doing the things that interest you so that you meet other people who are interested in those same things and derive pleasure from those same things. You will be forced to interact with people if you're working on a thing together and you can say, let's hang out sometime. You know, we're both into whatever it is, knitting, LARPing, this political campaign. Let's hang out sometime. Would you like to grab dinner sometime? Make yourself say those things to people that you feel some sort of not romantic spark with, but friendly rapport with. Some of them will have time for you. Some of them may have a lot of space in their life. Some of them won't have time for you. But the more people you ask, the more people you're going to meet who can make some time for you and will. But you got to get out of this relationship. And the mistake you've made in this relationship, do not make this mistake again. You say that your boyfriend, in addition to being your boyfriend, is your best friend and your confidant. 
Those are different roles, different roles for different people. Romantic partner doesn't have to be your best friend, probably shouldn't be your best friend. You need a best friend too. You need a confidant too. Sometimes the best friend is the confidant. Sometimes the confidant is someone that you aren't as close to. Sometimes it helps to have a confidant, someone who's not always in your life, not as present in your life as a best friend might be, someone you can turn to who's outside of your regular orbit, but you have this like connection and you confide in them and they confide in you. And when you divide these roles up and you don't buy into this current romantic horseshit that you have to have one person who is all things to you, well, then the prospect of losing your boyfriend or having to end a friendship with your best friend or having to, you know, or drifting apart from your confidant, you're not losing everyone all at once. If you put all your eggs, all your emotional, romantic, sexual eggs in one basket, and that's your romantic partner, who's not just your romantic partner, your sex partner, but it's also your best friend and your confidant, and then you have to end this relationship, you aren't, you, you lose all of those people, you lose the one person who's currently playing all of those roles in your life, meaning all of your emotional and social needs. If you keep those things separate and discreet, if you have a romantic partner or a boyfriend or a girlfriend that you're close to, that you can confide in, but is not your confidant. If you have to end the relationship, you don't lose your confidant. If you have a romantic partner that you love and enjoy spending time with, but a best friend you also love and enjoy spending time with, and these are different people in your life, the prospect of ending a relationship that you know you need to end isn't as terrifying because that person isn't your only everything. They aren't your romantic partner and your sex partner and your best friend and your confidant. You can lose one without losing all. Rant over. I ache for you. Where you're about to go is scary. You're going to be more isolated temporarily than you are right now. And when you already feel lonely, and you feel lonely because you're with the wrong person, but when you already feel lonely, the idea of doing something that you know is going to potentially further isolate you and contribute to your feelings of loneliness is terrifying. So what you have to do is make yourself a promise that when you do this thing that you know that you need to do, when you end this relationship, when you move out, when you get out there on your own, that you're not going to sit in your apartment all day long, that you're going to force yourself while you're alone to get out there in the world and throw yourself in front of people. You're going to get out there in the world and put yourself in circumstances where you are forced to interact with other human beings. You're going to get a second part-time job for bullshit money, doing something that's just kind of fun, work in a cafe, be a barista two nights a week. You're going to volunteer on a political campaign. You're going to volunteer for a charity. You're going to work in a community garden. Whatever it is, you're going to get out there and you're going to do things that you enjoy and meet other people who are doing those same things. You will already have established something in common with those people that you meet out there doing those things that you enjoy. You both enjoy X thing. And from there, you can figure out who amongst those people you meet who enjoy the things that you enjoy are people who have time for you and like you. There may be some people who like you but don't have time because their lives are full. Don't be angry and bitter about those people who like you. Enjoy your time with them at work or when you're volunteering and don't resent them if they don't have time for you outside of work and volunteering. But go find the people where you work or where you volunteer who do have time for you outside whatever the job is, whatever the cause is. And you will work your way out of this corner. Not that you painted yourself into, but really the culture did by sending you this message that a romantic partner is all things or should be all things. Best friend, confident, boyfriend. No, 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 no. In the future, those are three different people. So if you lose one, you're not alone. 
Hey, Dan, I'm a 46-year-old, confidently curvy single woman, and I'm looking for a partner. My last partnership was pretty lukewarm sexually. We had some great moments, but mostly it was, sadly, the typical situation of him orgasming and me not. I know now that in my next relationship, I need to be more open about what gets me going, what I need to connect more intimately, reach climax, but I'm kind of feeling stuck because, well, in essence, my last relationship, he told me I sucked in bed. So my confidence is really low sexually, and I kind of feel like at 46, at my age, I should, quote, know it all when it comes to sex, and I don't feel like I do. I feel like I need some education. I also kind of feel like being a curvier girl that some positions don't just work as well in my body and don't feel as accessible in my body. My desire and libido is strong, but I'd like to kind of figure out how I can get more sexually educated and thereby maybe get my groove back. Do you have any great resources for women like me who are looking to expand their sexual toolkits? Maybe resources that are a little less porn-like and a little bit more about getting creative and fun in a sensual and intimate way. Joining me by phone to help tackle this question, L. Chase, sex educator, writer, body acceptance and pleasure advocate and author of Curvy Girl Sex, 101 Body Positive Positions to Empower Your Sex Life. Hey, L. how are you? I'm fine. How are you? Really good. Thank you so much for jumping on the phone. I've been wanting to have you on for a long time. I, I, I follow you on Twitter, oh. and I think you're super smart about sex and consent and body positivity and everything else. So oh, thank you. Thank you for coming on. Thank you. So about this caller, wow, she really drew the short straw on the last boyfriend. Oh, boy, did she, man. She deserves so much better. Bad bad sex. I mean, fuck him is what I say. <laughs> It says a lot more about him than it does about her. Well, he's having sex with someone. He's coming. His partner isn't. And then he has the nerve to tell his partner that she's the one who's bad at sex. The person who's getting him off is the bad one. It's the definition of bad sex. Yeah, he's the definition of bad sex. Exactly. Exactly. So she needs to take that in like a bad Yelp review. It's just one review. (laughs) Disregard it. Uh, Because that is just nothing to do with how she is as a lover. Um, But I love that she called you and she wants to, it sounds like she wants to become more empowered and get into her sensuality, which is so great to hear. And she asked for resources, which I have a ton of, but um, I wanted to, to let her know that as far as positions go, just because we have different shaped bodies, we're bigger or skinnier or whatever, doesn't mean we can't do a bunch of positions. It just means we need to modify some. And even for those people who are average size, they can't do everything. I mean, just look at porn. Those people are athletes. You know, we can't do that. Like mm-hmm. running a marathon, you know, tomorrow without training. So um, I would say look at, well, look at my book <laughs> and then really sort of modify each position, maybe with some pillows underneath the lower um, back. Um, that's a good one. Anything that opens up the genital area is going to be a really great position. Also, if she tends to like um, a deeper penetration. Um, as far as resources go, I find that Women's Anatomy of Arousal by Sherry Winston Come As You Are by Emily Nagoski is great. Terrific book. And I think those are two really, yeah, they're great ways to start and to really start by a masturbation process um, and a practice of just really feeling your body. It, you know, we go through life and we just sort of, you know, we go to the bathroom or we shower, we, we do whatever, but we don't really connect with our own bodies. 
And sometimes if you're really going to give yourself that time to get into your own sensuality, touching and feeling parts of your body that might not even be considered sensual, you might find, oh, that's really titillating. I'd actually like that if someone was going down on me. You know, I did it myself and I'm like, oh, the inside of my wrist, who would have thunk it? You know what I mean? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, Getting into a masturbation practice is, I think, a really great way to get in touch with one's sensuality. It also makes you feel more sexual and more sexually grounded when you are having sex with yourself, you know, on a regular basis. And if you know better how to make yourself come, it's easier for you to show someone else how they can make you come. Absolutely. It's easy to, to, to incorporate. Yep. Sometimes I think you do have to, you know, particularly women think about incorporating your partner into your masturbatory sort of bag of yes. tricks that works for you rather than thinking there's some kind of partnered sex magic that you know, means you don't have to touch yourself or you don't need to use a vibrator. Often you do need to touch yourself and use a vibrator during partnered sex. Mm-hmm. Um, but the thing I wanted to jump back to is like this idea of the bed and getting a bunch of pillows. Sometimes it helps, particularly for people who have uh, different challenges with their bodies, to get the fuck out of mm-hmm. bed. Because this oh, yeah. big, soft, flat space isn't always ideal mm-hmm. for the angling of bodies. You know, if people are less bendy, if people are older, you know, one person, you know, sitting mm-hmm. on a couch and the other person kneeling in front of that couch and like lining up their, you know, holes and genitals is often a better position than like trying to do that on a bed. And, and pillows can get Absolutely. flat. Like there are bolsters, specifically kinds of bolsters that are sold the liberator, for, yeah. the liberators that are sold for people who have yeah. uh you know not just people of size but people who may have other challenges people with cerebral palsy who it can help them to exactly. be propped up in different positions in bed but also you can mm-hmm. put those on the floor you can put those on the couch mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. You, can, you can use any you can use i have a i have a position in my book called the iron throne mm-hmm. game of thrones and it's <laughs> you know bending over a chair and you know, and you have your partner has their hands free. They can do things to your clit. They can, you know, stroke you off. They can do whatever. But using stuff around the house like that too, absolutely, a hundred percent agree with you. You know, I have a, fr- I had a little, literally a straight couple, a friend of mine, uh, friends of mine, were telling me that you know she likes to have her pussy eaten flat on her back. But doing that, you know, when they do that, it's hard for him because he has to angle his head so sharply up. And I was like, oh, because you're doing it in, you're doing it in bed. Like, why doesn't she lay on the kitchen counter at the end of the kitchen counter? Because then you can just kneel straight up and you don't have to bend your neck back and you can eat her pussy and she can be flat on her back. And they were like, oh, it hadn't even occurred to them that they could take this thing that works for her flat on your back, getting your pussy eaten and just get it out of the bed and it's going to work for everybody. I mean, hell, you know, I'm, I'm thinking role play. You're at a diner. (laughs) (laughs) Just pull it on up. And you've got a role play in there and you're all excited and, and you know, uh, but yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Hey, percent great. Would you be willing to stick around for a couple more questions? Sure. Hey, Dan, I'm a 27 year old queer femme living in the Northeast. I'm a polyamorous and I've recently begun dating people other than my primary partner for the first time. My primary and I are kinky and like to play with different toys together. So I have all of these toys hung up near my bed. And now that I'm seeing other people and inviting folks over for sleepovers sometimes, I'm wondering about the pros and cons of having kink toys out when a new partner comes over and 
I'm wondering, like, do I need to disclose if I haven't had that conversation about my interest in identity as a kinky person with the new person? Should I have it before they see the toys? I guess I'm concerned that some of the folks I'm seeing might not be interested in kink or might be turned off by that. And since it's part of my sexuality that I enjoy, but don't necessarily need to be part of all of the sex that I have or part of my relationships with every individual, I'm just thinking about the pros and cons. I don't want to feel like I'm hiding them out of shame or fear of rejection or concern. But at the same time, I I don't know. I'm just wondering if you could speak to managing dynamics of kink disclosure as a poly person for whom kink and sex are often separate. Seems to me if you're going to walk somebody into your bedroom and there are tick clamps and floggers hanging on the wall, you might want to let them know in advance that those are things you enjoy, but not necessarily every time you have sex with someone. Yeah. My feeling is uh, I like to bring it up when we're having the STI talk, the relationship talk, and and just say, hey, listen, you know, I I am kinky and uh, I really enjoy playing kinky, but I don't need it to have satisfying, fun, you know, uh, exotic, fun sex. But I want you to let you know that when you come over, you're going to see all of these things, all this paraphernalia, and I don't want you to um, to be jarred by it. I just want to let you know that's a part of my life, and um, it doesn't have to be a part of our life together, our sex life or our sexual play, uh, anything like that. I, I do think you're obligated to have that conversation in advance if your like, BDSM kink toys are out in your bedroom. Because if somebody walks in there and they don't expect that, it's going to feel – it's going to – like that moment is going to feel slightly coercive where this is what this yes. person wants or expects. And if this yeah. is not something you want or expect from someone and those toys are laying out and you don't want them to mm-hmm. feel uncomfortable in that moment when you should be, you know, transitioning from not in the bedroom and to the bedroom, you need to, you, you need to, you need to say something in advance. You need to, to let them know that, oh yeah, like I'm sometimes kinky with my partner, but like with new partners or my other partners, that's not necessarily something I enjoy or have to do, but these things are out. And mm-hmm. you may find that then some people like, are down and want to experiment and are excited to be with you because of the, yeah. the the toys. But what you want to control for when you want to avoid is making someone when they walk into your room, feel like, Oh, this is not what I signed up for. Yeah, I agree. I a hundred percent agree. It's, it's part of that sort of consent conversation as well. You want that enthusiastic consent to be ongoing. And if you sort of walk into a room and you see all those things and you go, Oh, no one told me about it. It puts you immediately, you know, on the defensive. And, you know, I remember going out on a date knowing that this guy was kinky and he walked me into his, his spare bedroom and he said, this is my kink closet. And he opened it up and there was literally like a knife rack with knives from the top of the, top of the closet down to the bottom of the closet, which isn't my thing. <laughs> and, you know, I'm a gal in this guy's house. You know, we don't know each other that well, but, you know, so I went, ah, that's, yeah, something I might have wanted to know about beforehand. So, so yeah, you might want to uh, avoid unnecessary shock like that and, uh, and, dis- and disclose. Hello, I'm female and I am a month away from 45. I'm married. I have a great sex life in part thanks to this show. So thank you very much. But I'm calling about my breasts. They are very different in size and always have been since I was a teenager. Um, and I've always worn a silicone insert in my bra to uh, correct that difference 
at least how it looks on the outside in my clothing. Uh, it's varied at times, but right now it's about two cups difference. I saw a surgeon when I was around 30 years old and uh, decided not to have the surgery because she had told me that I wouldn't be able to breastfeed my theoretical children at the time. Well, I've those kids are a reality now. And in addition, I've lost over 30 pounds in the last year. And I'm kind of at a point where I'm like, hey, let's... Let's really up this body. So I saw another surgeon again, and uh, he told me it would be two separate surgeries, four months in between. Each one would have like a six-week recovery where I would have to stay home from work. And that seems like a lot. And uh, in order to lose the 30 pounds, I took advantage of the gym at work and in my neighborhood. And these are people that I see every day on the street fully clothed and I do contortions in order so that they, the women in the gym uh, don't see my breasts, uh, despite not being very body shy in general. I want some freedom, but I don't know at what price. Uh, part of me feels like I've worked really hard to you know, lose weight and I sacrifice to be able to breastfeed my children and uh, I deserve to have nice boobs. Another part of me is saying that it's a lot, that surgery, and I should just be happy with the healthy breasts I have and be proud of them and, you know, fuck it. So I'm just looking for advice from you, maybe even a reality check or advice or a reality check from other breast-having people out there. So breast surgery or body acceptance? And as someone who gets, you know, uh, breast surgery, uh, is that automatically or default a form of body non-acceptance, do you think? I don't think so. You know, I have a different view of body acceptance uh, than I think there are some other people out there. But I think that, you know, we we put so much pressure to love our bodies and, you know, to get to that place where we're just sort of eschewing any sort of negative connotation on our body without sort of thinking about what's in between. It takes a lot to go from I hate my body to I love my body. And there's all that gray area in between, all that nuance. Um, so I think that, you know, you have to sort of get with what, meet yourself where you are. Um, for this gal, I would say get a second and third opinion, because that does sound a little, I'm not a doctor, but it sounds like a lot. And, um, you know, you don't know what kind of you know, surgical advances. Yeah, I, I have friends who've had breast implants and friends who've had breast reduction surgery, and it didn't require more than one surgery or, or surgery, you know, at two different times. It didn't require as much recovery time mm-hmm. as that one doctor described. So definitely go get a second opinion. Yeah. You want a second L on that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the other thing I heard her talk about was, you know, being a little shy about her you know, difference in size when she's at the gym, what would people at the gym think, um, if I'm hearing that correctly. Um, and uh, I think if she's going to get the surgery, if it's not a hell yes, then maybe it's a hell no right now. Um, with having this kind of surgery, she's going to want to be on board with it 100%. And she's going to want to own it. And she's going to want to, you know, be out there and be proud about it. Body acceptance is... Uh, is something that we all struggle with, no matter what size you are, no matter what's going on with your body. Uh, and I think everyone can relate to that. But it's also important to give yourself some some room and know that you don't always have to be loving your body to uh, to to accept it. And if you want to change it, if that will make you happy, I say go for it. 
um, and just own it and own it proud and 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 do it. L. Chase, author of Curvy Girl Sex, Sex Educator, Writer, and Body Acceptance and Pleasure Advocate. Thank you so much for jumping on the phone. You're terrific, and I hope you'll come back sometime. Oh, thank you. I'd love to. Hi, Dan. I'm a 29-year-old woman married to my husband is 51, so you can do the math. When we got married, we had been working together six years. We had a great relationship, and I was very attracted to him. And he's just always been so romantic. He's really like the best person, best companion, best friend, um, has dinner ready for me every night. I mean, really is a great guy. Now we have a one-year-old daughter and he stays at home with her while I run my business. And my attraction to him has dwindled way down. And a few months ago, we brought up having an open marriage. He talked about maybe wanting me to be able to see other men because we talked about the issue. So I, um, you know, started to pursue that. I was hesitant about it, but at the same time, jumping up and down on the inside. But I started to pursue that. I found someone that I wanted to meet with, and then he freaked out, and we had a huge argument about it. And then a couple months later, he opened it up again. And so I've actually met with someone and I have this huge passion and attraction to this person, but I'm wondering, is this a dangerous slippery slope? Like how do people actually do open marriages where without hurting the other person, I don't want our marriage to end, but can I realistically stay married to my husband, have the great relationship that we have and have hot, passionate sex with someone else that I might potentially fall for. It's funny that you should say I can do the math or you can do the math to me because I often can't do math. Math is what I'm worse at. Whenever I attempt a little simple math in my column, and it does sometimes come up in a sex advice column, you have to subtract ages. I screw it up invariably. So just wanted to throw that out there for the record, on the record, I cannot do the math. All right. You ask how do people actually do open marriages without hurting each other? And I don't know the answer to that question. I also don't know the answer to the question, how do people do closed marriages without hurting each other? There's something about letting someone in. There's something about being very close and intimate and in a marriage or a long-term relationship with someone where there is going to be some hurt. You let somebody into such a deep part of yourself that if they make an unexpected move or have an unexpected feeling that conflicts with your feelings, hurt is hardwired into that experience. It's how you process and handle the hurt, how you're spouse or your husband or wife reacts to you when you are hurt that makes you feel good about staying in that marriage despite the occasional hurt that it causes you. It does sound like you guys did it right though, I have to say. You're talking about opening your marriage, at least in theory. You met someone that you would like to more than just in theory fuck and your husband freaked out at the reality of what an open marriage might mean and then you didn't fuck that person. You slammed the brakes on. And in slamming the brakes on and not insisting on fucking this person because you'd had this conversation previously where you might be allowed to fuck this person, in that moment, when you stopped, you demonstrated to your husband that he can trust you, that you will roll this out at a pace that he is comfortable with. And he went from contemplating an open marriage to having to contemplate the imminent opening of his marriage. And he wasn't ready and freaked out and you backed off. You showed him that you are going to wait until he is ready. And you really did it 100% right because after you backed off, it wasn't you who raised the subject of an open marriage again. You hung back until he raised the subject again. All right. We have to figure out what's in this open marriage 
for him though? Has to be something in it for both of you. Is he allowed to sleep with other women? You're not sexually attracted to this stay-at-home full-time parent who makes sure there's a meal on the table when you get home. You're not attracted to him right now. People who are told that maybe if they did a little bit more of the housework, they'd be getting a little more sex, are going to take the wrong lesson from your personal experience. But you're not attracted to this guy right now. Would you be more attracted to your husband if you were also allowed to have sex with other guys? Would he benefit? Would there be something in it for him? If you were out there getting more sex, having these sexual adventures, would you be more attracted to him? Would you be having more sex at home? That's often the case when people open the marriage. You know, sometimes people have a closed and mostly sexless marriage. They open the marriage and they suddenly come alive sexually and not just alive for the people they're having sex with who aren't their long-term partners, but also they rekindle the spark with their long-term partners. Is that's what's in it for him? Is he aroused at the idea of you having sex with other people? Is he into the hot wife thing? Is he into the cuckolding thing? Is there some angle, fetish-wise, that you can work where after you've had sex with somebody else, you can bring that home and share it with him in a way that not only makes him feel safe and that you are going to come home and that you do prioritize him, but also is a huge turn-on for him? And of course, only he knows the answer to this question. Is he allowing you to have sex with other people because he fears losing you and he's pud, poly, or open under duress? Or is he raising this subject because on some level it turns him on? The thought of his hot 29-year-old wife getting it on with somebody else turns him on. And he hasn't said that to you directly because he struggles with kink shame or sex shame about it. You need to have that conversation with him. You need to draw him out. I understand, honey, what's in it for me if I can have sex with other people. You haven't asked me if you can have sex with other people. Do you not want to have sex with other people? Or is there something in me having sex with other people that is exciting for you to think about? And how can I treasure and honor and center that, whatever that's in it for you when I'm doing this with other people so that it feels like this is something that benefits us both? But have that conversation and figure out what that is, what's in it for him, before you start fucking someone else. And considering you have a one-year-old child at home – Maybe avoid having sex with other people that you think you could catch feelings for. Maybe the other people that you have sex with should be people who, not that you loathe or despise, but just because of circumstance, you couldn't actually be with. Hi, Dan. I was wondering, so I'm a big fan of oral, mostly receiving, but I give oral regularly. I do not give oral on first dates, so that's like a big rule of mine. I just think it's a little gross. Like, it seems like a really easy way to contract a disease. But I realized recently, like, I've been receiving a lot of oral on first dates, always saying, oh, hey, I'm not, I'm not going to reciprocate because I don't do that on first dates, but I do reciprocate eventually. And most boys I'm with, same time with that, end up going down on me. I was wondering, though, if that is a way to contract some sort of STD. Like, can you contract an STD from receiving oral? It seems unlikely. Is it okay that I'm doing this? Is it okay that I'm like, oh, hey, by the way, I do not reciprocate oral on first dates. Like, I'll totally suck your dick if we keep dating, but not going to do it if this is a one-time thing. If you listen to our show a few episodes ago where we had a conversation with Anna Waters from The Atlantic about the sad, tragic comic history of the Nobody uses it dental dam. One of the things we discussed was that oral sex, cunnilingus, is one of the least efficient modes of STI transmission. You are much less likely to get a sexually transmitted infection during cunnilingus or oral sex than you are through other forms of penetrative intercourse. That doesn't mean you can't. 
You can get herpes, you can get HPV, you can get gonorrhea, you can get syphilis, you can get chlamydia. That all of those can be orally transmitted, not as easily transmitted orally as gonorrhea or syphilis or chlamydia are transmitted vaginally during PIV penetration without a barrier, without protection, and with a partner who has a sexually transmitted infection. Sexually transmitted infections don't come into existence through spontaneous generation. It has to be there for you to acquire it. So yeah, you can totally get an STI through oral. As for the morality of this, you don't like to suck dick on the first date, but you will let a guy eat your pussy on the first date. Uh, you know, it's not totally fairsy squaresy, but you don't like to suck cock on the first date. It would turn you off to give that blowjob on the first date. If he enjoys eating pussy on the first date, well then on that first date, you are both doing the things that turn you on. He is turned on by eating your pussy, and that's why he volunteered and signed up to eat your pussy, whether or not he got his dick sucked, because he enjoys eating pussy, and he wants to eat your pussy, and you enjoy having your pussy eaten, so you're both enjoying yourselves, and that's really the most important thing. We're not keeping a checklist. I suck your dick for five minutes. You eat my pussy for five minutes, and everything's reciprocal and egalitarian. It's about what do we both want to do? Where are the areas where we're in overlap and on the same page? Where's our What does our Venn diagram sexually at this moment look like? Where are the areas of overlap? And if you overlap at you eat my pussy, that's fine. And if he is fine waiting a couple of dates before he gets his dick sucked, you obtained his informed consent in advance of that unfairsy, unsquaresy oral sex deal. And considering the numbers of men out there who accept blowjobs without eating pussy, I think you can put your uh, your clit on the scale here. I think you can slap that thumb down on this scale without too much guilt. Hello, I'm 25 years old, cisgendered gay man living in the Northeast. So I met this guy on Grinder, and initially it was supposed to be a one-night stand. And this was over a year ago. And he came over and... It, the sex was fucking incredible. Like he brought weed and I I had liquor and vodka and we got drunk and high and we fucked like four or five times um, within four hours. And it was phenomenal. It was one of the best fuck sessions I ever had. At the end of the night, I had like, we had a connection. Like I was attracted to him. He was attracted to me. He was like, yo, you should be my boyfriend. Like, we should get to know each other better. And I was like, shit, okay. Because he, like, he was exactly my type. He's like masculine, thug, Latino. Um, and he's seven years older. He's 32. And apparently I'm his, his type as well because um, he likes the chubby bottom boys. Latino, I'm Latino. And he likes that. Um, so we've been talking on and off for a while. And recently we made it official that we're going to try to go steady. Every time I want to go on a date with him, like I want to get to see him outside of the bedroom, it just never, it never follows through. We end up like just staying in my house and, and fucking around. And that's great and all, but I, I want more. And the sex is still great. And he, he says he wants more as well. So how do I get him to follow through with that? To want to talk to me more? Because he works at a warehouse. And he is tired at the end of the day. He goes home. He goes straight to bed usually. So I, I hardly talk to him throughout the day. Yeah. How do I make him like, you know, like want to talk to me more and be more open with me and to go on legitimate dates with me outside the bedroom? I don't want to traffic in stereotypes about mask gay guys or mask 
and I'm quoting you, a Latino gay man, mask thug Latino gay guys. But one of the things that seems to correlate with the whole kind of mask thing is a certain emotional unavailability that can tip into a social unavailability. If he is wrapped up in his identity, in him being perceived by others, his friends, even strangers on the street, the other guys at his warehouse as a mask dude, and he isn't out to them as a gay mask dude, parading around town, being seen around town with his hot, chubby, Latino boyfriend could undermine that. He may not want to be seen in public with you because he doesn't know how to square who he perceives himself to be and who he actually is, you know, mask Latino dude, works in a warehouse, blue collar, with loves to have sex with and make out with and roll around for hours and have hot sex with other dudes. Like Some mask guys don't want to kiss in public, don't want to hold hands, don't want to be perceived as gay because they think it undermines their mask presentation and how they're perceived by others. Which is kind of ironic because the idea is if other people know that they're gay, that they won't believe that they're masculine and they'll think the masculinity is an act when it's actually their refusal to be publicly who they are, which demonstrates that indeed the masculinity is literally an act. So what do you do? Well, if you want a relationship, if you don't just want to be his on-call cute, hot, chubby, Latino bottom boy, you have to insist on it. If he has the energy to fuck you for four hours after work or before work, he has the energy to go out in public with you for two of those hours and limit the fucking to the other two. And that means meeting up with some of his friends so you can meet them or some of yours so he can meet your friends. There's a public component to being boyfriends. There's a public dimension to that kind of relationship. And if he can't provide that to you, if he can't be your boyfriend on the streets, not just in the sheets, then you're going to have to end this relationship because you don't want to be somebody's hot, chubby, dirty, little Latino bottom secret. You want to be somebody's hot, chubby, Latino bottom boyfriend. You'd like that to be him. He's your ideal. You're super attracted to him, but you're going to have to make demands on him for his time and attention outside of the bedroom and outside of his apartment and outside of your apartment. And the risk there, of course, is he may decide that being public, publicly your boyfriend, isn't a price of admission he's willing to pay to be with you, and that could signal the end of this relationship. He's not going to be the boyfriend that you want him to be unless you're willing to risk losing him as your boyfriend. All right, before we get to your response calls, I'm going to read some of your tweets. Emma McGowan tweets, at Fake Dan Savage, shouted out smoking weed and watching 90 Day Fiance on this week's Savage Lovecast. And I feel like all of my life choices have been affirmed. Stuart Bishop tweets, just renewed my Savage Lovecast Magnum subscription once again. Love and thanks to Fake Dan Savage for all the years of a gay American helping to clarify the thinking of a straight Brit. At least we have show tunes in common. Thank you, Stuart, for being a Magnum subscriber. Thank you to all of our Magnum subscribers. You guys help keep the show going, as do our micro listeners. Everybody helps keep the show going, but Magnum subscribers have a special place in all of our hearts. And finally, Stella tweets, 
Listen to E. Jean Carroll's extraordinary interview on the Savage Lovecast episode 670 with my students on Friday. It led to a long discussion about trauma, the different guises of rape, and how we talk about victims and perpetrators. Hey, fake Dan Savage, this high school teacher thanks you. Hey, Stella, this sex advice podcaster thanks you in return, bringing real conversations about sexual trauma, sexual assault to high school students is not only important, it's also sometimes for high school teachers professionally risky. We appreciate the work you're doing and the risks you're taking out there in the trenches. If you want me to read your tweet on an upcoming episode of the Savage Lovecast, be sure to use the hashtag Savage Lovecast and now your response calls. Hi, Dan. This is a response to episode 675, the caller whose boyfriend betrayed her trust. You recommended that she break up. I totally agree with that, but I think your reasoning was flawed. You sort of turned the situation around on her and said that, you know, she was trying to prevent her partner from having friends. It sounded to me more like he was gaslighting her after having uh, betrayed her trust. And I don't think that's her fault. In either case, you're right, they should break up, but um, I wish you would have put the blame in the right place. Hi, Dan. Calling about your advice to the caller who was unable to forgive her boyfriend about an emotional affair that he had had. I think your advice was spot on. About a year ago, about a year and a half ago, um, a longtime friend of mine told me that he couldn't talk to me anymore because his girlfriend was threatened by our friendship. He was a close friend for many years. Uh, We hooked up many, many years ago in college, but since then had you know, just been friends and we like to go hiking and camping. Um, But yeah, for about a year and a half, that's a relationship that I have mourned and I hope he's happy. But if that's the price of admission, he's willing to pay. Great. But I liked your advice to her. So thanks. Hey, Dan, a comment regarding the caller on 675 asking about a thin dom relationship and a man that wanted to remain anonymous and send her money. Potentially that could be a scam where after sending her a small amount of money, ask for her bank account number, or to take out a credit card that he can automatically put cash value into, then she's given up her bank account or given up a credit card information. It'd be very easy to find somebody's high school or their history information about them to seem like they know her well enough, and it would be very, very easy with a bank account number to clean her out. And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you want to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz, 206-302-2064. Savage Love Live is coming to Toronto and Boston this weekend. There are a handful of tickets available for both of these live shows, but they are going to sell out. If you want to see me in Toronto on Friday or Boston... On Saturday, go to savagelovecast.com slash events and grab those tickets before they're all gone. Oh, and my Dirty Little Porn Film Festival, Hump, will be in Tucson, Arizona this weekend for one night only. Go to humpfilmfest.com slash tour to get tickets. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow L Chase on Twitter at L Chase. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me in the tech savvy at-risk youth and Nancy. We'll all be back at you next week with an installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading.